0: Now take your Bibles, please, and turn to the prophecy of Haggai. Our text this evening will be Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The book of Haggai is very short and is very clearly divided into four different uh, messages that the Lord gave to the prophet, and we're going to consider the second of those four tonight. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the Word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes?" And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And that is the reading of God's word. Let's ask him now to bless it to us. Father, we do pray that you'll bless the ministry of the word and that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be exalted in our midst. And we pray this in his name. Amen. When the people of Israel went into Egypt, back in the book of Genesis, they went down, there were about 70 people. When they left Egypt 400 years later, or however many years later that was, they were in the millions. There were 600,000 men of war, and that was just men from ages 20 years old and up, not including males under 20 years old, or women, or the mixed multitude that went out. Seventy people, and they went out a whole nation. When the prophet Elijah was praying that the drought would end, he sent his servant to go look and see if anything was happening. Seven times the servant went, and he saw nothing. Until last time Elijah sent him, he saw a little cloud forming in the sea about the size of a man's hand, he said. And before too long, that little tiny cloud filled the sky The skies became dark and there was heavy, heavy rain. Daniel interpreted the dream of a pagan king and in that dream there was this gigantic image. And at the end of the dream, a stone came and struck the feet of the image and the image fell and was shattered. But that stone grew and became a gigantic mountain and it filled the whole earth. In the gospel, God takes really small things and he turns them into great big things. That's what he does. That's the way his kingdom works. And that was the point of the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus talked about a little tiny seed, that among all the garden seeds, it was the smallest of all, but when it's planted and when it grows, it becomes larger than all the garden plants. In fact, it becomes like a tree and birds can nest in its branches. And what we have here in the book of Haggai is a small group of Jews who had returned from exile, a small ragtag remnant of what was formerly a great nation. And there they were huddled back in their land, back from exile, and yet under Persian authority under orders from that pagan king, but also from the Lord God himself, to rebuild the temple of God. And this little tiny remnant of people was tasked with this great thing. And they were discouraged. And God came to assure them. He came to assure them that even when our outward circumstances are discouraging... Christ is powerfully building His kingdom. That's what this text is all about. You see small things. Or what I've called the day of small things. But even in the day of small things, when you have God's presence, you have power. So our second point will be the strength of God's presence. And then finally, what I'm calling the coming gospel earthquake. A great work of God that grows out of something very small and seemingly insignificant. Even when our outward circumstances are discouraging, Christ is powerfully building his kingdom. So first of all, let's consider the day of small things. Let's think about these Jews who had returned from exile. They'd been commanded to rebuild the house. Now, Haggai and the prophet Zechariah prophesied, and they labored. Their their labors were concurrent. They were two witnesses that God had raised up. Not just one, but two witnesses. And by the mouth of these two witnesses, God... uh, sought to instruct his people, sought at times to rebuke them, and sought to encourage them. And it was Zechariah in the fourth chapter of his prophecy, verse 10, he makes reference to the people who had despised the day of small things. You've heard that phrase perhaps. And maybe kind of taking that phrase and and seeking to uh, utilize it, Uh, you've been told or you've heard the expression, don't despise the day of small things, right? Well, that was from Zechariah. And what we have here is the day of small things. The rebuilding on the temple had begun. The people had been at it for a few weeks. If you look at the time stamp, uh, remember the prophecy we read about in the first chapter of Haggai came in the second year of Darius, sixth month, first day, and now we're in the seventh month. We're not even a full month from the first prophecy. And the people have been building, or excuse me, we're not even a full month from when they began to build. And as they've gotten going, now they're becoming discouraged. And part of the discouragement came from the fact that some of them were were making this contrast between the work that they were doing and the former temple, Solomon's temple, and that's why in verse 3, God himself asks them, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So, discouragement had set in. And as uh, the commentator Alex Matier put it, he said, by the time the message came to the, this message came to the people, they had done some weeks of work on the temple site, enough perhaps to impress upon them the greatness of the undertaking and their own inadequacy. A message of encouragement was thus in order. And remember, in verse 1, we're told this was the seventh month and Matthieu makes the further observation, Solomon's temple was dedicated in the seventh month. You can go back and find it in 1 Kings. King. Solomon's temple was dedicated in the seventh month. This knowledge would have intensified the depressing comparisons of Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. So that's what the people are faced with. That's what's on their mind. Discouragement had set in. Why? Well, there was much work to do. And the people knew quite well that Solomon's temple had taken seven years to build. And they're three weeks in, and they're thinking about what lies ahead and what has to be done and how monumental the work is. And not only is there much work to do, but their resources are scarce. They just don't have much wherewithal. At their disposal if you uh, look at numbers we find in the Old Testament and sort of make try our best to make conversions uh, from units and so forth uh, we estimate that approximately 285 tons of gold were used in the adornment in the decoration and the construction and the furnishing of Solomon's temple. 285 tons of gold and approximately 600 tons of silver. And how are these poor refugees from exile going to come up with that kind of revenue, those kind of assets? They just can't do it. And not only the uh, lack of gold and silver they have this deficit in terms of their workforce. Again, you can read right in Scripture Solomon's workforce that he mustered for the construction of his temple, God's temple, in Solomon's days, were 180,000 people. That's how many workers there were. They worked in shifts, yes, but 180,000. And to put that in perspective, The total population of the land of Judah now in the days of Haggai was only about a tenth of that. About 20,000 people total in the land now. How are they supposed to match the labors of a workforce of 180,000 people? So it's a depressing scenario, isn't it? Especially for those who had seen the first temple. And apparently there still were a few. Can you imagine what it would have been like? It was already obvious. They hadn't they had barely even laid the foundation. And it was obvious that this temple that they were building was never going to be able to match up to Solomon's temple. It wasn't even going to come close. And we have a, a record of what happened when the foundation was first laid. This was, I think, before, before the work on the temple had to stop temporarily, but the people are back from exile, and they, re- they begin to rebuild the temple. And in Ezra chapter 3, you may be familiar with this. This incident, Ezra chapter 3, verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So some of the younger people, they get the foundation of the temple of God laid, and they're cheering. They're so excited that this work is is getting started. But then the people who had seen Solomon's temple and remembered it wept because of the contrast. The dimensions were the same. Those had been ordained by God. Uh, God's own word says, you know, this is how big it needs to be. This is how, how it needs to be laid out. And the holy of holies has to be 20 cubits by 20 cubits and so on and so forth. So this, it's not that the size was any different, but the adornment, the grandeur of it, it was like nothing in their eyes. So this was a day of small things. And there's, there's an application for us in this because we experience days of small things too, don't we? We're often tempted to discouragement in our work, particularly in our work for the Lord. You look around at what's going on in our country and even at what's going on in the church, the church at large. There's never a shortage of discouraging things happening in the church of Jesus Christ, is there? seems we read about... Disappointing and saddening, and things even that anger us all the time. We're disheartened because the work is often hard. It's often thankless. We don't see the fruit that we'd hoped for. You know, we're striving after th- sanctification. We're trying to do evangelism. We do our daily ministry, whatever it is that we do. And those things very rarely look glorious, do they? Progress is slow, setbacks are many. We often feel like we live in a day of small things. We need encouragement. And God knew the people in Haggai's day, as they began the work, needed encouragement. And so he gives them some. And that encouragement came in the form of the strength of his presence. That's our second point the strength of God's presence. See, no matter how discouraging the outlook was, God says to the people, Be strong. That's the word of the Lord to them be strong. You find that command frequently in Scripture it's a word of an encourage, of an encouragement but it's it's a command from God be strong an imperative we find it numerous times being given to Joshua directly from Moses but then even directly from God himself and he he admonishes Joshua he commands him be strong and courageous so when the people first entered into the land four times in one chapter God commands Joshua be strong and there are other examples too. And then we find, interestingly, King David, when he's near death, admonishing and charging his son Solomon to build the temple. And what does he tell Solomon? He says, be strong. Be strong and do the work. And I say it's, it's interesting that David gives that admonition to Solomon in connection with the specific task of building a temple for the Lord God Almighty. And so you have that same admonition, be strong, and you have it three times in verse 4. From God through Haggai the prophet to the people of the land. And the command, be strong, interestingly, is to the whole congregation. Remember in, in chapter 1, God, it seems, was speaking primarily to Zerubbabel, the, the, uh, the governor, and to Joshua the high priest. Here, when he says be strong, he's speaking to everyone. He speaks to Zerubbabel, and he would represent the civil leadership of the people, he was the governor. Israel had no king. They had the Persian king, but they didn't have a Jewish king of their own reigning in their land. They were subject to the Medes and Persians at this point. But a governor had been set over them, and he was their local government. And God says to him, be strong. But he also speaks to the religious leadership, Joshua, the high priest. Because what they're doing is a spiritual undertaking. They're building the house of God. It's a religious work. So he says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak." And then he says, be strong, all you people of the land. Everyone had a contribution to make. They all need the encouragement from God, and so he gives that to them. He tells them, be strong, and he says, do the work. Do the work. They were discouraged. It was a day of small things. But he he admonishes them, work. Do you see that? They're towards the end of verse 4. Work. One little word. But there's, I think, an important application for us in this. Something I've learned. From scripture, but also through experience, and I pass this along to you. When you're discouraged, quitting never helps, it just makes things worse. When you're discouraged, you will never become less discouraged by quitting. So God says, Work. I know you're discouraged, but work. someone might say, yeah, okay, but I need encouragement. Can't I get a little bit of that? God says, yes, you can get a little bit of that, and here it is. Work, for I am with you. The presence of God is our encouragement. The fact that He's with us. Isn't that amazing? Work, for I am with you, He says. That motivates and strengthens God's people to know that God is with them. How can we keep working even when it's discouraging? Knowing that God is with you. The Lord's presence motivates his people to work. In something, for instance, like a football team, you know, when you're in practice and different coaches are working with different players and so you've got maybe the the defensive back coach or the running back coach or the wide receiver coach and he's over there and he's working with the wide receivers and they're all doing their drills and then the head coach comes by all those wide receivers start to work a little harder they start to run a little faster they they focus even more on keeping their eyes on the ball because the head coach is there the head coach's presence motivates those players And the presence of God motivates his people to work. But it not only motivates his people, it also strengthens them. God's presence, the presence of the Lord God Almighty, strengthens his people for work. Moses, in that passage from Exodus 15, which we call the Song of Moses, said, the Lord is my strength and my song. Psalm 28 says, "The Lord is my strength and my shield." You see the connection between the Lord and the strength of His people, or in those familiar words of Isaiah, when he says, "They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles. God strengthens His people." God's presence. Motivates and strengthens His people. And you notice how in Haggai here, God encourages us even more by the fact that His presence with us is grounded in His covenant faithfulness. Verse 5, look at it with me again. When he said, "'Work, for I am with you,' declares the Lord of hosts, "'according to the covenant that I made with you "'when you came out of Egypt.'" Think of that. What's he telling them? He's telling them, I'm still the same God. He's telling them, I'm still with you. God's presence is part of the very essence of the covenant relationship. It's part of the very essence of why he saved a people, so that he could be their God and he could be among them. Exodus 29, 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. What was the point in building a tabernacle? What was the point in building a temple? Does God need a house? No. That tabernacle and then later the temple represented the presence of God among His people in their midst. And when he says, I'm with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, that's strong reassurance for his people. What he's saying is, you were faithless, but I am remaining faithful. I haven't changed, God says. I'm still with you. And he says in this passage, my spirit remains in your midst. Verse 5. And that word translated remains in your ESV Bible, the Hebrew word is my spirit is standing in your midst. My spirit is standing with you. That speaks of a a stability. It speaks of strength. And it describes the presence of God's spirit not in terms of something that's sort of hovering around. His presence isn't uh, passing through. It's not an elusive presence. He's standing firmly in the midst of his people in covenant faithfulness. Therefore, he says, fear not. I'm with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The temple wasn't even built yet. The foundation had barely been laid, but he was with them nonetheless. So fear not. That's a short little sentence. It's two words, both in English and in Hebrew, but uh, it's of tremendous importance because what's true of the, the Jews in Haggai's day is true of us as well. We can take courage in the presence of God and in his promises of what he will do. So again, in terms of an application for us in the present day, this is a word of encouragement for Christians in every age. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? He said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age we don't know how long God will tarry. But if he tarries many generations from now, all of us are going to die, but we can be assured that God will still be with our children and with our children's children and with their children's children. Hebrews thirteen five. I will never leave you or forsake you, God says. So be strong in the strength of His might for whatever work He's called you to do. Be strong and fear not. I read this in the commentary earlier this week. Fear not, be strong, and persevere in God's work, knowing that this work, despite all appearances, is glorious, and that one day the glory presently hidden in weak, fragile jars of clay will be fully revealed to the whole creation." The day of small things won't stay small because God's going to do something. And he speaks about that in verses 6 through 9, what I'm calling the coming gospel earthquake. And yeah, I, I kind of uh, uh, appropriated the title of a, of a book written by a Christian economist a number of decades ago, a man by the name of Larry Burkett. He warned about government... Uh, Uh, overspending and deficits and how that was going to eventually wreak havoc on our economy. And the book was titled, The Coming Economic Earthquake. Maybe some of you read it or remember it. But this passage speaks of a coming gospel earthquake. God announces that he's going to shake things. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. God says He's going to shake things, and that is the basis upon which His people can be strong. That's the basis upon which His people can work and not be afraid. It's going to be a global event. Universal in scope. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. Nothing's left out of that. All the earth, all the people. God asserts his power over the cosmos. He asserts his power over all the people, the whole creation. And he asserts his lordship over the, and power over the nations. And one thing that struck me as I was studying this passage, you know, God has many names that He uses for Himself in Scripture. He has many titles that are used in the Scripture. One of those titles is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. And you see that title in verses 6 through 9 six times. Six times in six verses. And by my count, I looked, and I think that is the the, um, the highest concentration of that particular title anywhere in the whole Bible. Lots of prophets, uh, when God was speaking through the prophets, many of them used that title, the Lord of hosts, Lord God of Sabaoth. But this, you, you never see it used that many times in so few verses. What's the point that God's trying to make? by repeatedly calling himself the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. He wants his people to know that he's the Lord of all creation. There's nothing too hard for him. There's no resource that's not at his disposal. Those people may have been thinking, oh, we don't have any gold. We don't have any silver. The Lord God of hosts says it doesn't matter. All of it's mine. I can get it by any means I choose. Well, what does he mean? I'm sure you're probably wondering, what does it mean when God says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and all that? What's he he saying there? Well, since we have the New Testament, we can cheat. You see, we can go forward to Hebrews chapter 12 and find out what he's talking about, or at least how the New Testament writers and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament applies this passage. And when you go to Hebrews 12, verse 26, the writer makes a comparison between the shaking that took place when God gave forth the law on Mount Sinai and this shaking that's going to come in the future. And the contrast, or excuse me, the comparison that's being made is to the last day, the end of the age, when this present heaven and earth are destroyed and the new heaven and earth are ushered in. That's how the writer of the Hebrews interprets it. And it's interesting that in Hebrews 12, 26, that Greek word where, that's translated yet once more i will shake the heavens and the earth not just the heavens but but also the earth and so forth that greek word there can mean one last time or it can mean once for all so that seems to be what the writer of the hebrews says was in mind because the only thing that's left it speaks of the things of shaking the things that can be shaken so that what remains is things that cannot be shaken the eternal things, in other words. And so, you and I have the benefit of the book of Hebrews, and we can interpret Haggai in the in context of Hebrews. These Jews in, in 520 B.C. didn't have that, though, did they? So how, when they heard the words of God through Haggai, how would they have interpreted it? How would they have understood it? What benefit would it have been to them? Well... We can't know for sure what they were thinking or fully comprehend what they understood or didn't understand. But we know this. <clears throat> in the Bible, in poetic language and or prophetic language, when it spoke of shaking or an earthquake, is usually a reference to some mighty work that God was going to do. God was getting ready to act. Very similar to the way the word remember is often used in Scripture. When it says God remembered Noah in the ark, it doesn't mean that, Oops, God temporarily forgot that Noah was floating around on the surface of the water and then, oh, God remembered. No, when it says God remembered this person or that person, it means God took action. And that's what it means when it says God is going to shake something. He's going to take action. He's going to do a mighty work of some kind. So, for example, Psalm 18, it's a very interesting study because in Psalm 18, David is rehearsing a great deliverance of God, but the first half of the psalm kind of describes that deliverance of God in all these really supernatural kind of um, uh, poetic ways. And then the last part of the psalm is a description of the same deliverance, but more in terms of what actually happened to the eyes of the flesh and and in real life. God was at work behind the scenes. God was doing mighty things in the spiritual realm, and he described some of those as shaking and uh, the earth shaking. But those things didn't actually happen on that particular occasion in the real world, you see, in the physical realm. You get the same thing when uh, Deborah and Barak sing their song of deliverance after the deliverance uh, that God gave them from their oppressors when they're celebrating and praising God that he saved them from their enemies, they say that the earth shook when it didn't actually. That reference to the shaking is speaking of the the greatness and the power and the relentlessness of God's work in their behalf. Now, in some cases, yes, literal earthquakes are involved. The, the earth really did shake when God thundered the Ten Commandments from Sinai. There are other situations where God really literally did bring an earthquake to accomplish something or other. But whether there's an actual physical earthquake or not, shaking language in the Bible is always a description of the power of Yahweh and him acting in behalf of his people. In other words, when God says, I'm going to shake, he's saying, I'm going to do a mighty work in behalf of those whom I love. And then as we close, I want to bring your attention to verse 9. And there are two remarkable gospel promises made by God in verse 9. First, he says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Then he says, in this place, I will give peace. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Now, when the people heard that, I'm sure they couldn't possibly believe it. How could that be? How could that ever be? That we could build something that will exceed Solomon's temple in glory. Well, it exceeded Solomon's temple in glory in ways that, They probably couldn't have anticipated. One of them, for starters, is Solomon's temple. As the years went by and as the people were unfaithful to God, there were altars to pagan gods erected in Solomon's temple. This second temple was kept pure from idolatrous, idolatrous altars. There was no pagan worship that ever took place in the second temple. But far more glorious than that this second temple that the people were starting to build now, eventually, God in the flesh would come into that temple. That's glory. Jesus Christ, the Word of God incarnate, would come into that temple someday. And the whole image and significance of the temple would be fulfilled in Christ. Christ. Because the temple itself, Solomon's temple or the, the second temple, even after it had been adorned and built up and gilded and glorified by, by Herod's building projects, none of that compared with the glory that Christ was in His own flesh. He, the Word, became flesh and He tabernacled with us. The temple was fulfilled in Christ after Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the Father, his gospel was preached in that temple. That's more glorious than gold and silver. The apostles proclaimed the gospel in that temple. And then, of course, the temple was fulfilled in the church. What do I mean? First Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. So when Christ established His church and the Holy Spirit was poured out and He began to build us up as living stones into a spiritual house, the symbolism of the temple was obsolete because the temple was fulfilled in us. So that's, those are numerous ways in which the latter glory of the house would be and, and actually is greater than the former. But then he says, in this place I will give peace. All the Old Testament sacrifices were merely symbols of atonement. The blood of bulls and goats cannot possibly take away sins. So not a single sacrifice that was offered in the tabernacle or in Solomon's temple or in this temple that the people were building now, not one of those sacrifices could even atone for a single sin. They were symbols Symbols of God making peace with man through blood sacrifice. Actual atonement was made by the Lord Jesus Christ through His blood on the cross. And it's in Him that we have peace. Peace with God. So the Savior came into this temple and His sacrificial death symbolized Every offering that was ever made in the first temple or the second temple. And yes, when Jesus died his sin-bearing death, he didn't die there in the temple. He didn't die there on the altar in the temple. He, He died outside the temple, even outside the city. But the temple itself represented him. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the temple. He is our peace. So, you got the parable of the mustard seed. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Jesus told that parable and he was saying, my kingdom's like that. Take what appears to be small, insignificant, but add to it the presence, and the power of God. And the result will be something greater than we could have imagined. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. And when you think about insignificant things, think about Christ on the cross which is what we're going to remember when we come to the table now. The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and there was a sign over him that said, King of the Jews. But he didn't look very royal, did he? He didn't look very powerful as he hung there. That was a day of small things. Maybe the ultimate day of small things. Because this king on a cross, his body was being broken for you. As he hung there on the cross in weakness, he was pouring out the blood of the new covenant, which was shed for the remission of sin. And we go to remember that now, so let's ask the Lord to be with us as we observe the sacrament. Father in heaven, as we come to the table, we pray that you will show forth more clearly than ever to our hearts the beauty of Christ, the sacrifice that he made for us, and may we preach to one another good news of the death of Christ in our behalf, And may we remember him in this sacrament. We pray in his name. Amen.